Night waned upon this talk, and even the witching hour had gone by before we retired to rest. When I placed my head on my pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavour to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away from his odious handiwork, horror-stricken. He would hope that, left to itself, the slight spark of life which he had communicated would fade, that this thing which had received such imperfect animation would subside into dead matter. Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, 1831 Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 21, Frankenstein. On December 6, 1931, a motion picture premiered at New York's Roxy Theater just off Times Square. A relatively short film, only an hour and 11 minutes long, the picture featured a middle-aged English actor named William Henry Pratt. Unknown and so anonymous to American audiences, even under his screen name, Boris Karloff, that he wasn't even invited to the premiere. The picture, Frankenstein, was one of two runaway hits for Universal Pictures in the grim depression year of 1931. The other was Dracula, which made a star of Bela Lugosi, to whom Karloff's role as Frankenstein's monster was originally offered. The two horror pictures alone pulled Universal out of the tank, The studio had lost over $2 million the previous year, but the two most famous monsters in horror history, Dracula and Frankenstein, ensured the survival of one of Hollywood's staple studios. The 1931 Frankenstein is definitely a cinema classic. Followed by numerous sequels and remakes, including a reboot in the 1950s by British horror studio Hammer Films, featuring another iconic actor, Christopher Lee, in the role of the creature, The face of Frankenstein's monster is one of the most instantly recognizable images in the history of motion pictures, and popular culture in general. Even the word Frankenstein has a unique cachet in our language. If I told you that by starting this podcast I created a Frankenstein, you would know instantly what I mean. Fortunately, I don't feel that way about Second Decade, but I do expect that by using that one word, 
Frankenstein as the title of this episode, virtually everyone who sees it come across their podcatcher will know exactly what I'm talking about. Frankenstein, the concept and the original novel, is one of the most indelible cultural artifacts of the 18-teens. In fact, it could not have been created at any time other than the 18-teens, as we'll see. The creation of the novel by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley is almost as famous as the image of Karloff in Universal's interpretation of her story, created 80 years after her death. The creation of Frankenstein is not only one of the great stories of the second decade. Telling that story is one of the core reasons that made me want to create this podcast in the first place. The tale of how Mary Shelley came up with this indelible piece of horror fiction is a story that's got everything. Sex, intrigue, a spooky old house, bizarre personalities, shocking scandal, and even a bit of environmental disaster. It involves not just Mary Shelley herself, but a cast of colorful characters who seem larger than life, and in some cases who transcend their extremely bizarre deaths. I'm talking principally about Mary's husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and their mutual friend, George Gordon Byron, Lord Byron, one of the great English poets of his time, and also a personality so strange, impulsive, and toxic that at times he resembles the 19th century equivalent of a James Bond villain. History, honestly, doesn't get much better than this. If you like horror, if you like literature, if you feel that subtle attraction to the shadow realm that has tempted people for the last 200 years, get some popcorn and join me now for a journey into the heart of darkness, the creation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Late on a summer's night in August 1797, one likes to imagine that it was a dark and stormy night, a child was born in a well-to-do house in a part of London called Summer's Town. This was no normal birth and no normal family. The little girl named Mary was the daughter of the controversial feminist and writer Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, and her husband, philosopher William Godwin, an anarchist and atheist, among other things. The delivery was very difficult, and the afterbirth, the placenta, was still lodged in the birth canal. Godwin sent for a doctor who had to wrench it free with his bare hands. Talk about horror. Mary Wollstonecraft, weak and feverish, lingered on for more than a week. On September 10, 1797, she died, leaving Godwin a widower with a newborn daughter. He was crushed with grief. But something moved him to write a memoir in the next year, 1798, of his life with Mary Wollstonecraft. His Vindication, that's what it was called, publicized salacious details of the elder Mary's unconventional lifestyle, particularly her extramarital affairs and her possible relationship with another woman. Upper-crest British society, already ruffled by Mary's outspoken feminist writings, was scandalized. Still, Mary Godwin, the child, was brought up healthy and generally happy. In 1801, William Godwin married again, this time to a woman named Mary Jane Claremont. There's a lot of Marys in this story, just to warn you. Mrs. Claremont, as Godwin referred to her, had two children by a previous marriage, Charles, then five, and a daughter, Claire Claremont, who became Mary Godwin's stepsister. Claire Claremont is going to figure prominently in our story. Mary was tutored by her father and grew up reading books and becoming quite skilled herself in writing and the deployment of words and language. Her late mother had been a champion of substantive education for women. 
and although William Godwin didn't adhere strictly to her prescriptions, by the time she grew up, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin was a very erudite, refined, and intellectual young woman, about what you'd expect from her famous intellectual and political pedigree. By 1812, William Godwin was rapidly going broke. It was good fortune for him, then, that a wealthy young man, also an atheist and something of a radical, fell into his orbit. That young man was Percy Bysshe Shelley, son of a member of Parliament, educated at Eton and Oxford, and a poet. Seeing dollar signs, or pound signs as it were, in Shelley's glassy eyes, Godwin pounced, adopting Shelley as a sort of protege. Shelley, for his part, generally agreed to help bail Godwin out of debt. He eventually became a frequent visitor to the chaotic godwin Claremont household. Shelley was already married. In 1811, after scandalizing his family by having an affair with his cousin, Percy Shelley decided rather impulsively to elope with one Harriet Westbrook, who was 16. Shelley was 19 when they married. The marriage went bad pretty quickly. We don't know where or when Percy Shelley first met Mary Godwin. It may have been in 1812, but they played an increasingly large role in each other's lives beginning in 1814. By this time, the financial arrangement between Shelley and William Godwin had soured. Shelley's money was tied up in his family estate, and they weren't real keen on giving him cash to pay the debts of that scurrilous old atheist and anarchist. The bromance between Shelley and William Godwin, if it was ever anything more than money, was definitely over by the spring of 1814. But if the bromance was dead, a new romance was springing up in its place. Shelley abandoned his wife Harriet, at whom he was reportedly quote-unquote physically disgusted. He frequently met Mary Godwin at St. Pancras Churchyard, the gra- and the grave of her famous mother. There is some suggestion in Shelley's letters that he and Mary did the horizontal rumba for the first time in that graveyard, perhaps on Mary Wollstonecraft's grave. Amorous liaisons in a graveyard is another element of gothic horror in our story. At the end of July 1814, Percy and Mary decided to flee England for Switzerland, where they hoped to start a new life together, away from wagging tongues, troublesome parents, and exes, and the child that Percy had by Harriet, whom he abandoned. Deadbeat Dad, second decade style. Incidentally, they brought along Claire Claremont, mainly because she could speak French. Mary and Claire were both 16. For weeks, the three of them wandered around Switzerland, France, and what's now Germany, often on foot, reading Shakespeare and other great works of literature, and writing verse. Some of it's very telling. In a notebook, Mary wrote in Latin, He was holding me in his arms in the bed. I almost died of madness and delight. Beloved lips were again seeking mutual kisses of life. He calmed my fears. During this trip, while traveling along the Rhine, Mary and Percy witnessed the crumbling ruins of an old castle against the horizon. Ruined castles had particular resonance for English travelers in the second decade. It was a key part of the movement known as Romanticism that would sweep through the 19th century. These particular ruins had a name, Castle Frankenstein. Unfortunately, the romantic junket around Europe came to a crashing halt when Percy ran out of money. By mid-September 1814, the three of them, Mary, Percy, and Claire, were back in England. Two things had happened on the trip. Claire had most likely fallen in love with Percy, and Mary had become pregnant. Mary's father disowned her. 
she, Percy, and Claire moved in together into a boarding house. Claire, always a little jealous and obsessive, began exhibiting strange behavior. There's a curious account from October 1814 of Claire shrieking and writhing around on the floor, evidently convinced she was possessed by the devil. It may have been an attention-getting scheme to insinuate her way into Percy's bed, which wasn't hard considering all three of them supposedly believed in free love. On February 22, 1815, Mary gave birth to Percy's child, a daughter. The baby was premature, not being expected until April. Medical science was pretty powerless to save premature children in the 18-teens. Less than two weeks later, baby Clara was dead. Mary, always an imaginative girl, began to have terrifying visions of her dead baby. She was haunted by the thought that the death was somehow preventable, and her own mother, having nearly died in childbirth with her, made the loss even more terrible. In May 1815, Claire finally moved out. Mary was soon pregnant again. We know surprisingly little about her life between the summers of 1815 and 1816, as her journal for that period was evidently lost, or perhaps destroyed, for reasons unknown. In January 1816, Mary had her second child by Percy, a son, William, who survived. In the meantime, Claire began casting about for a new lover. She fixated her sights on a young, tempestuous, and very talented man, a nobleman, of course, and a poet, also a director at the Drury Lane Theatre. George Gordon Byron, known universally as Lord Byron, was well known for his poetry in early 1816, and he was perhaps even better known for the scandals he instigated, such as a sexual affair with his half-sister. He was naturally married when that happened, because, of course. Another lover of Byron's, Lady Caroline Lamb, famously described him as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. This phrase has stuck to Byron for over 200 years. To say that Claire Claremont threw herself at Lord Byron is something of an understatement. It's more like she strapped herself into the nose cone of a cruise missile and launched herself at him. He professed, at least publicly, not to be interested in her, but something obviously happened. During the fateful summer of 1816 in Geneva, Claire discovered she was pregnant, and Byron must have done the deed before he left England, in self-imposed exile to escape his scandals, in April. Byron recognized Claire's clingy, obsessive nature pretty early on. He was headed for Geneva, Switzerland, where he could write and carry on his naughty affairs unmolested. Upper-class English often summered in Switzerland, and the shores of Lake Geneva, dotted with luxurious chateaus, was kind of like the European version of Club Med in the second decade. Claire desperately wanted to follow Byron to Geneva, but he made clear that he wasn't going to take her, at least not alone. So Claire decided to introduce the famous poet to two much less famous writers, Mary Godwin and Percy Shelley, and induce them to go to Geneva too. That would at least justify her presence in the orbit of the great poet Byron, with whom she was obviously still obsessed. Mary and Percy were looking to get out of England again anyway. Percy finally had the prospect of some money, with the estate of his family about to be settled. In May 1816, the four of them, Mary, Percy, Claire, and the baby William, left England for the continent. Byron was supposed to follow later. 1816 was known as the year without summer, and for good reason. In episode 7 of this podcast, we talked about the eruption of Mount Tambora, a volcano in what's now Indonesia, which circled the earth in a shroud of volcanic dust 
and cause bizarre weather and climate anomalies all over the world. Tambora was not the sole cause of this period of global cooling. There was a previous eruption of an unknown volcano in 1809 that also contributed, but the spring and summer of 1816, a year following Tambora, was cold and stormy to an unusual degree. They felt it on the journey to Geneva. Traveling in a carriage across narrow mountain roads, Mary described lashing storms, even snow. This was in May. Ten men were needed to keep the carriage from sliding off the road. The weather was damp, dark, and gloomy. She and Percy hoped Geneva would be a little bit more welcoming. It was. Lake Geneva was beautiful in spring, a huge puddle of blue surrounded by green hills. The Shelley party checked into the Hotel d'Angleterre, a lakeside place just outside of Geneva. They told the innkeeper that Mary and Percy were husband and wife, they weren't, and Claire was Mary's sister. Lord Byron arrived a few days later. He had thoughtfully brought along his doctor. John William Polidori, who also moonlighted as a writer, was only 20 when he accompanied his famous patient to Switzerland, having graduated with a medical degree just the year before. Polidori also had an ulterior motive for the trip. A publisher, John Murray, had offered him 500 pounds to keep a diary chronicling his adventures with the wicked Lord Byron. This is the second decade equivalent of selling a story and paparazzi photos to TMZ.com or the National Enquirer. Polidori may also have been looking for romance. He was extraordinarily handsome, scorching hot, one might even say, and seems to have developed a thing for Mary while they were staying in Geneva. On May 27, 1816, Lord Byron and Percy Bysshe Shelley met for the first time on the shores of Lake Geneva. Polidori recorded the scene, quote, Getting out of a boat, L.B. met M. Wollstonecraft Godwin, her sister, and Percy Shelley. Dined. P.S. The author of Queen Mab came, bashful, shy, consumptive, 26, separated from his wife, keeps the two daughters of Godwin who practice his theories. End quote. A few days later, on June 3rd, the Shelley party, which included Claire, and also a Swiss nurse they'd hired, Elise, moved out of the hotel and into a house called the Maison Chapuis, on the shore of the lake. One week later, Byron and Polidori took a house only 100 yards away, a large but strangely unassuming-looking chateau called the Villa Diodati. As the rain clouds gathered and swept over the lake in those days in the late spring of 1816, all the pieces were now in place. One of the greatest horror stories in all of literature— and a host of less famous works, equally moody and gothic, were about to be created. On the surface, life along the shores of Lake Geneva in the spring and summer of 1816 seemed charming and easy. For all Shelley's financial troubles, these people were rich, upper-crust Britons. Byron had a peerage, for example— and they were pretty much on permanent vacation, though most of them were supposed to be writing. Mary Shelley in later years described how it went, quote, At Diodati, Byron's life was passed in the same regular round of habits into which, when left to himself, he always naturally fell. A late breakfast, then a visit to the Shelley's cottage and an excursion on the lake. At five, dinner, when he usually preferred being alone, and then, if the weather permitted, an excursion again. He and Shelley had joined in purchasing a boat 
for which they gave 25 louis, a small sailing vessel fitted to stand the usual squalls of the climate, and at that time the only keeled boat on the lake. When the weather did not allow of their excursions after dinner, an occurrence not infrequent on this wet summer, the inmates of the cottage passed their evenings at Diodati, and when the rain rendered it inconvenient for them to return home, remained there to sleep. We often, says one who was not the least ornamental of the party, sat up in conversation till the morning light. There was never any lack of subjects, and, grave or gray, we were always interested. End quote. There was, nevertheless, an undercurrent of scandal about the goings-on at the Villa Diodati. When Byron went there on June 10th, the owner of the hotel where he and the Shelleys had originally stayed, the Hotel d'Angleterre, installed a telescope in the garden of the hotel so his guests could spy on the famous scandalous English literati across the lake. In fact, there are reports of hotel guests gossiping over nightgowns and bedsheets seen hanging from the balcony of the Villa Diodati. Lord Byron was undoubtedly carrying on with Claire Claremont. He hadn't wanted her clingy attentions in Geneva if she was alone, but since she was with the Shelleys, he was perfectly happy to sow his wild oats, so to speak. Byron wasn't an easy guy to have as a boyfriend, or to know generally. A letter written by a neighbor, whom Lord Byron visited in early June, describes the poet as, quote, insolent and repulsive, and his countenance is very much disliked. Despite this seemingly party atmosphere, such as it was in the second decade, there was still definitely a feeling of gloom and foreboding just beneath the surface. Mary was still tormented by thoughts and visions of her dead child. Byron, always mercurial, seems to have had a love-hate relationship with Claire. Separating fact from fiction in how and when the idea for Frankenstein was hatched is almost impossible. Mary Shelley herself provided a highly romanticized version of it in the preface to the 1831 edition of her novel Frankenstein. I'm going to quote from it extensively. Keep in mind it's the preface to a gothic horror novel published in the early 19th century. There's obviously going to be some embellishment. Quote, but it proved a wet, ungenial summer, and incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Some volumes of ghost stories, translated from the German into French, fell into our hands. There was the history of the inconstant lover, who, when he thought to clasp the bride to whom he had pledged his vows, found himself in the arms of the pale ghost of her whom he had deserted. There was the tale of the sinful founder of his race, whose miserable doom it was to bestow the kiss of death on all the younger sons of his fated house, just when they reached the age of promise. His gigantic shadowy form, clothed like the ghost in Hamlet, in complete armor but with the beaver up, was seen at midnight by the moon's fitful beams to advance slowly along the gloomy avenue. The shape was lost beneath the shadow of the castle walls, but soon a gate swung back, a step was heard, the door of the chamber opened, and as he advanced to the couch of the blooming youths, cradled in healthy sleep, eternal sorrow sat upon his face, as he bent down and kissed the forehead of the boys, who from that hour withered like flowers, snapped upon the stalk. I have not seen these stories since then, but their incidents are as fresh in my mind as if I had read them yesterday. We will each write a ghost story, said Lord Byron, and his proposition was acceded to. There were four of us. The noble author began a tale of 
a fragment of which he printed at the end of his poem of Mazeppa. Shelley, more apt to embody ideas and sentiments in a radiance of brilliant imagery, commenced one founded on the experiences of his early life. Poor Polidori had some terrible idea about a skull-headed lady, who was so punished for peeping through a keyhole, what to see I forget, something very shocking and wrong, of course, but when he was reduced to a worse condition than the renowned Tom of Coventry, he did not know what to do with her, and was obliged to dispatch her to the tomb of the Capulets, the only place for which she was fitted. The illustrious poets, also annoyed by the platitude of prose, speedily relinquished the uncongenial task. I busied myself to think of a story, a story to rival those which had excited us to this task, one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror, one to make the reader dread to look around, to curdle the blood and quicken the beatings of the heart. If I did not accomplish these things, my ghost story would be unworthy of its name. I thought and pondered, vainly. I felt that blank incapability of invention, which is the greatest misery of authorship, when dull nothing replies to our anxious invocations. Have you thought of a story I was asked each morning, and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative? End quote. I presented this long quote not because I'm convinced it's literal fact, it may be, or it may be an approximation of the truth, but to give you a sense of how intertwined imagination and literature was with reality that summer, in the lives of these people. Haunting visions and voices from the past were very real to them, possibly more real than their actual surroundings. In the modern world, in our day-to-day -day existence, we tend to keep a very strict wall between our reality and our imaginations. Among literati in the second decade, especially people like Byron and the Shelleys, that wall was much more permeable. The four that Mary refers to, incidentally, are herself, Percy, Lord Byron, and Dr. Polidori, all of whom came out of the summer with some significant piece of literary output. Claire was undoubtedly there, possibly throwing herself at Byron every chance she got. But what really happened? Can we really know? We do know that Dr. Polidori suffered an accident at the Villa Diodati on June 15, 1816. Byron seems to have goaded him into it. He was undoubtedly aware that Polidori was making eyes at Mary, and he seems to have had a little fun. The Villa Diodati was on a hill with a steep path leading up to it. On this afternoon, June 15th, as Mary was coming up the path, Byron suggested to Polidori, they were on the balcony, that he jump down to the path and take her arm to help her up. The jump was eight feet. Polidori sprained his ankle and was laid up for more than a week. While reclining, his ankle in splints or whatever, I'm assuming that, I don't know for sure, the others sought to entertain him. Polidori was at that point writing a play, part of which he read aloud. Byron mocked it savagely, as he was wont to do. But he said by way of consolation that worse plays had been submitted to the theater at Drury Lane. Polidori seems to have been put upon not just by Byron, but by Mary, who stomped his hot something fierce by telling him he was like a younger brother. Uh-oh, friend zone. No wonder he took to writing vampire stories. Anyway, that same day, June 15th, Polidori recorded in his diary that he and Shelley discussed the nature of man and life. There had been a series of lectures given back in March at the Royal College of Surgeons by Dr. William Lawrence, which the group was probably familiar with. 
Dr. Lawrence had argued that life, the soul, was not necessarily separate from the physical body. That was a heretical notion in the second decade. In contrast to Mary's very gothic and romantic account of the genesis of Frankenstein from 1831, which invariably portrays the horror as having been conceived on a stormy night, in the original 1818 edition it's a little less dramatic. She says that the central idea, that being the creation of life from an amalgam of human and animal parts, that that idea came up in casual conversation. This conversation about the nature of man and life may have been the conversation she was referring to. But of course, by 1831, she had to make the tale much more gloomy and dramatic. I'm going to quote again from Mary's 1831 preface. Now, just to warn you, there's a reference in this upcoming quote to a Dr. Darwin. She is not referring to Charles Darwin, the man who developed the theory of natural selection. In 1816, he was only seven. She's referring to Erasmus Darwin, an English physician and naturalist who died in 1802. He was, in fact, the grandfather of Charles Darwin of evolution fame. Quote, Many and long were the conversations between Lord Byron and Shelley, to which I was a devout but nearly silent listener. During one of these, various philosophical doctrines were discussed, and among others the nature of the principle of life and whether there was any probability of its ever being discovered and communicated. They talked of the experiments of Dr. Darwin. I speak not of what the doctor really did or said that he did, but, as more to my purpose, of what was then spoken of as having been done by him, who preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass case, till by some extraordinary means it began to move with voluntary motion. Not thus, after all, would life be given." Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Galvanism had given token of such things. Perhaps the component parts of a creature might be manufactured, brought together, and endued with vital warmth. End quote. This notion was shocking and horrifying in the early 19th century. The idea that life could be created artificially, manipulated, granted by human beings who might be morally ill-equipped to deal with its implications, that was a terrifying notion in 1816 and it's exactly the raw and troublesome idea that Shelley explores in Frankenstein. The ghostly storytelling sessions continued over the next three nights, June 16th, 17th, and 18th. On this last night, the storms were raging, the shutters were closed against the windows, and at midnight, the group gathered around a blazing fireplace. Lord Byron began to recite dark poetry, which triggered a terrifying vision for Percy Shelley. Polidori's journal, quote, L.B. repeated some verses of Coleridge's Christabel of the witch's breast when silence ensued, and Shelley, shrieking and putting his hands on his head, ran out of the room with a candle, threw water in his face, and after gave him ether. He was looking at Mrs. S., and suddenly thought of a woman he had heard of who had eyes instead of nipples, which, taking hold of his mind, horrified him, end quote. Incidentally, this exact image, verbatim, appears in the 1986 horror film Gothic, directed by Ken Russell, a fictionalized retelling of the Frankenstein creation story. I talked about that film briefly in episode 20. Brought to life with modern special effects, it's a pretty vivid image, and must have been even more so in these surroundings. A spooky house at midnight, dimly lit with flickering candles, a storm raging outside, 
and the minds and nerves of everyone in the house deliberately frayed and racked by ghoulish visions. Polidori began working on his own ghost story about this time. In fact, each of the four, Mary, Percy Shelley, Byron, and Polidori, were each working on something. But as is true of most writers, the original ideas went through many twists and turns before emerging into final form. Still, a one-week stretch between June 15th and June 22nd, 1816, seems to have been the crucial period. Frankenstein and Polidori's The Vampire obviously got their start during this fateful week, and Shelley wrote something called Fragment of a Ghost Story. Polidori's diary mentions the ghost stories resuming each evening at midnight, sometimes after coming from a ball or other social event. His ankle continued to give him pain throughout this period, and at times he couldn't walk too well. On June 22nd, Byron and Shelley left their respective houses together for a tour of Lake Geneva. Mary was left at her chateau with Claire, her son, and the new story she was working on. The lake trip, which lasted until the 1st of July, was fateful. On it, Byron seems to have confided in Shelley that he'd gotten Claire Claremont pregnant. There are writings about this pregnancy that indicate Byron's clear indifference toward the whole matter. Indeed, he seemed to be pretty tired of Claire by now, and most likely their sexual relationship was over with. Byron couldn't be bothered to provide anything for the child. Shelley, therefore, thinking that he at last had some control of his family's fortune, decided to step up to the plate. After they returned from the lake, Shelley added a new provision to his will, providing Claire 6,000 pounds sterling. Byron was never mentioned, of course. The month of July 1816 was exceptionally rainy in Central Europe. In fact, excessive rain and flooding wiped out many crops in the countryside. In the next winter, 1817, there would be riots in Switzerland and many other places by peasants who couldn't afford the subsequent high prices of bread. The letters and diaries of the Geneva group mention rain several times. In mid-July, Byron wrote a poem called Darkness. At this time, due in part to the stormy weather of the year without summer, and a perceived increase in sunspots, a prophecy, which originated in Bologna, Italy with an unnamed astronomer, air quotes around astronomer, predicted that the sun would go dark and the world would end on July 18, 1816. This story made all the papers in Europe and a few in America. It went viral by the standards of the time, and everyone was talking about it similar to the ludicrous Mayan calendar doomsday prophecy of December 2012. Even John Quincy Adams, then U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, mentions the Bologna prophecy in his letters, lamenting how foolish and credulous some people could be. Modern literary scholars have linked Byron's darkness explicitly to the Bologna prophecy, and indirectly to the stormy nights at the Villa Diodati. Here is a portion of the poem. I had a dream, which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space. Rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went, and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation, and all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light, and they did live by watchfires and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons, cities were consumed, and men were gathered around their blazing homes 
to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes and their mountain torch. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour by hour they fell and faded, and the crackling trunks extinguished with a crash, and all was black. On July 21st, 1816, three days after the world was supposed to end but didn't, Percy, Mary, and Claire set out for a tour of the Alps. Mary was still working on Frankenstein during the trip, and her diary resumes during this period. It's full of descriptions of the majestic vistas and mighty mountains they saw along the way. In August, they returned and found things gloomy. Byron and Claire were on the outs. There was bad news from Percy's lawyers. His father wasn't going to give him more money unless he returned to England. Byron did finally acknowledge that he'd knocked Claire up, and made arrangements that wouldn't allow his child, her child, to be raised by strangers until at least age eight. Claire would publicly appear to be the child's aunt. Real gracious, but Lord Byron was pretty much, well, a dick. On August 29, 1816, Mary Godwin, Percy Shelley, Claire Claremont, and little William packed their trunks and left Geneva to return to England. Claire wrote a last pathetic letter to Lord Byron, claiming she would love him forever. He ignored it. Tragedy began to stalk the group not long after their return to England. On October 10, 1816, Mary's sister Fanny, with whom she'd been corresponding this whole period, I haven't mentioned Fanny, but she's prominent in Mary's life, Fanny committed suicide by overdosing on laudanum. Two months later, on December 10th, Percy's wife Harriet, very pregnant, drowned herself in Hyde Park in London. Less than three weeks later, Mary and Percy were finally and officially married. Claire's baby, a daughter named Allegra, was born in January 1817. During that year, 1817, Mary finished Frankenstein, got pregnant again, and gave birth to a daughter, Clara. Frankenstein was published in 1818 to great acclaim and we know the rest. That was the happy part of Mary Shelley's story. In 1818, exiled again from England, this time to Italy, Mary and Percy lost both of their children. Clara died in September in Venice, and William died in Rome in June 1819. Mary and Percy Shelley's relationship was defined by the horror of dead children. Polidori split from Byron's employ in September 1816 and also wound up in Italy. His story, The Vampire, was published in 1819. It was the first piece of vampire fiction in English. I guess we have him to thank, indirectly, for being the progenitor of Bram Stoker's Dracula, published in 1897. But then we also have Polidori to blame, again indirectly, for the atrocity of the Twilight series published in this century. The literary vampires that they created at Diodati in the second decade didn't sparkle. Polidori committed suicide in London in 1821. He was only 25. Percy Bysshe Shelley drowned in the Gulf of Spasia in Italy in July 1822. Despite not being a Viking, he had one of the most famous Viking funerals in history, being burned on a pyre of sticks at the beach at Via Reggio. He was not quite 30. Mary was now a widow at age 24, and all of her children were dead and she had suffered a miscarriage of her latest pregnancy just three weeks before her husband's death. 
Claire's daughter by Byron, Allegra, also died that same month, July 1822. Lord Byron went off to fight in the Greek uprising against the Ottoman Turks, a romantic thing to do if ever there was one, and he died of a fever in Greece in 1824, aged 36, having never returned to England. Mary and Claire were the only survivors of the ghost story circle, and both had suffered more than their share of personal tragedy and horror. Mary Shelley lived into her 50s. She died in 1851. Claire Claremont eventually became a music teacher in Italy. She died there in 1879. With all the death in this story, particularly at its end, the only true immortal of the group was Frankenstein itself. Equal parts touching and frightening, delivering pathos as well as horror, Mary Shelley's novel has lived on for two centuries now, constantly being rebooted in film, literary spin-offs, and on television. The image of Frankenstein's monster, whether played for chills, as in the classic 1931 Universal picture, or for laughs, as in Mel Brooks's 1974 comedy Young Frankenstein, the image is deeply embedded in our collective unconscious. Frankenstein, the novel, the monster, the concept, is one of the greatest and most enduring legacies of the second decade. And now you know how it came to be. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend. Talk about it on social media. If you're part of a Facebook group, there's a lot of historical Facebook groups, give me a mention. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful because it will help other history buffs, like you, find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger. There's an underscore there and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Mary Shelley by Miranda Seymour, published by John Murray of London, 2000, and The Journals of Mary Shelley, 1814-1844, edited by Paula Feldman and Diana Scott Kilbert, Oxford Press, 1987. Music Credits The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu No. 1 by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Shoe Star portrayed Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. This podcast was recorded and written by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.